1: is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. On the line with us is our old buddy, Professor Richard Wolf, the economist, co-founder of democracyatwork.info. And RDWolf.com with two Fs it is also his website. And the author most recently of Understanding Marxism. You can tweet him at Prof. Wolf. Professor Wolf, welcome back to the program. Thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, Tom. Glad to be here.
1: So over the weekend, I was reading your book, understanding Marxism and you did this an absolutely marvelous job of explaining how basically we started with kind of tyranny essentially and slavery and how slavery then kind of morphed into feudalism where instead of actually explicitly owning and micro directing the individual people who were enslaved in a feudal society those people you know they were given some small portion of the land in order to grow their own food so that the lords didn't have to care for them so directly, and then you took the step from there to capitalism, where the lords or the slave owners are now the the executives in the company, shall we say? And you talked about the the difference between excess surplus labor, I believe was your phrase. And I'm forgive me for mangling this. It, it's been a few days since I read it. First of all, you want to just riff on that real quickly and lay that out more clearly than I did, because I'm sure I just screwed it all up.
2: Not at all. I'm glad to do it. You didn't screw it up. It's really a simple idea that we've had now a long period of human history early on when things were done in tribes, in groups, in communities, in villages, which were pretty much horizontally organized, not much difference between whoever was the chief or not and everybody else. And then we had a period of more recent human history where we broke that system down into one in which there was a clear division between a minority who made all the basic decisions, economically at least, and usually politically as well, uh, and a vast majority who had to live with them. The first of those was slavery, with the masters, a minority, controlling and dominating the majority slaves, telling them what to do, and making all the decisions about the work and the products of that work. Then we went to feudalism, at least in the European sequence, uh, where we had, again, a minority, although this time they were the feudal lords, and a majority, and this time, instead of slaves, they were the serfs. The the revolutions in America and France at the end of the 18th century were supposed to bring us an era of uh, freedom, equality, liberty, and democracy, but they didn't. What they did was bring us a change in that arrangement but not the end of that arrangement and so the, the basic idea is that the employers a minority who make all the key decisions what to produce how to produce where to produce what to do with the with the output uh, are again in control of a majority but they're not slaves or serfs now they're employees and that the name of the game is to recapture the goal of the capitalist revolution in America in France and so on, which was to get beyond these divisions. That wasn't achieved. And so the Marxist critique has always been, you've got to go further. You've got to make further changes if you're going to realize uh, the shared objective of liberty, equality, fraternity, and democracy.
1: And I would add innovation to that. Because
2: innovation and an innovation that is participated in by everyone in society, rather than being a specialized task of a few, subordinated to the profit demands of those who direct those few.
1: And that's and that's where you know I look at capitalism, and uh, as somebody who, because of capitalism, has done well with his life. I mean, I've, I've started and built up five businesses and sold them off. I've retired five times. And I've never considered myself somebody who exploits his employees. And in fact, none of my companies have ever really made a huge profit. The money that I always made was selling them at the end. But it seems that under a slavery system or a feudal system, the people who are in charge are in charge generally by virtue of birth. They were born into a wealthy family. They were born as royalty. They were born, you know, as feudal lords. They were the children of some warlord who took over a place. And, and you see some of that in a capitalist system, certainly. And this is where I think that we need to change the rules of capitalism to aggressively diminish that. But with capitalism, you can become, because you have an idea and the persistence to pursue that idea, You can achieve a modicum of success. Certainly, I'm no Bill Gates, but, I mean, you can achieve a modicum of success because of innovation or talent. In other words, you can rise above DNA and lineage or, you know, whatever the, the phrase would be. And it seems to me like that's the thing that has produced the vibrancy of capitalist economies over the last 200 years and all this innovation that has, that has happened around the world. If you agree with that analysis, if you disagree with that analysis, please tell me and tell me how and why. If you agree with that analysis, how can we reconfigure the rules of capitalism to get more of that and less of what we see with you know, some of these large corporations where they are run like kingdoms? Well,
2: I guess I half agree and half disagree. Let me try to explain. Absolutely. You can probably make a good case that capitalism has more opportunities for mobility than feudalism or slavery did. But it's only a question of uh, degree, not of kind. Uh, The history of feudalism, like the history of slavery is filled with examples of uh, unusual slaves or unusual serfs who, by dint of this or that talent, uh, of an innovation, of great physical or mental skill, uh, were able to break out of their slave status and rise up in the system or, for example, in some slaveries, to become masters themselves. So they had their own slaves, even though they were technically the slaves of yet a larger uh, master above them, and you had the same thing uh, in feudalism. But again, you can give capitalism some credit for having a bit more uh, of that mobility. But I wouldn't take that issue too far. Uh, We all know that if you are born into the Rockefeller family, your chances all the way through life are a completely different story from the chances of a person who's born into poverty uh, and both of those people are born through no act of their own that's their parents who made that decision etc cetera, etc cetera. Yeah, so i think i think the reality is yes we could, but we can do much better than capitalism by making the possibility of getting a good education, having the time, getting the support uh, to break through with new ideas and new ways of doing things. If that were a much more generalized capability than what capitalism allows, you know, I'm a graduate of Harvard and Yale. I'm a kind of pastor, uh, uh, poster boy for elite education, but I can assure you in those institutions i was surrounded by a clear majority of young men in my case because it wasn't uh... at the time uh, who were there because of their families, because of the resources of their families, not because of any special uh, talent or desire on their own part, which they freely admitted because they were often quite unhappy in this environment, because it really wasn't what they were interested in, uh, having grown up with luxury all their lives, etc., cetera, etc., cetera. whereas for the kids from the other side of the tracks, like me, we were all hungry uh, to get ahead because our parents had, had shaped us that way. Uh, but this society is heavily shaped by its inequality and people have to face the unpleasant fact that if you build a system that is as unequal as ours, you are basically cutting off major sources of innovation and growth because of the... Of people who are denied the access to all the little and large steps along the way that lead to being able to make a breakthrough.
1: Right, I totally agree. So, what I'm trying to get to is like the sweet spot where opportunity is available. When you and I grew up, within a couple of miles of probably where either one of us grew up, There were probably quite a few people who actually owned their own businesses, the local dry cleaner, the local restaurant, the local hotel, the local pharmacy, the local, you know, the local newspaper. I mean, you fill in the blanks, right? The local gas station. These were all small businesses and small businesses tend to be run in a far more humane fashion than giant corporations. And now they're all gone. I mean, you could fall out of a plane at 60,000 feet and land anywhere, any random place in America and look around and see, oh, there's an olive garden, there's a holiday, and I have no idea where the hell I am. So A, you know, returning some sense of locality of, of small business to America, which would be, what, aggressively enforcing antitrust laws. And B, having a social safety net so everybody can have education and healthcare and all those kind of things. So there's not, you know, you don't have a desperate workforce. And then C, building incentives in the tax structure and corporation laws to have more beneficent corporations more cooperative corporations rather than purely hierarchical corporations is that a middle ground that's viable or are you just uh, are you suggesting that we just you know full on should say you know no karl marx was absolutely right just wipe the whole thing you know clean the table
2: well you know i wish I really do. I'm I'm not being rhetorical here. I wish the middle ground were something that I could believe in. I mean, it is possible. We do have an antitrust division. There was a time in America at the end of the 19th century with the Sherman Act, the Clayton Act, and all of those steps which showed that there were mass political movements effective enough to get the laws passed but the way capitalism works is, they fight against all of these kinds of restrictions if they lose that fight which occasionally they do okay then the law gets passed and then they go to work to eviscerate the law to get it amended to get it not enforced and then eventually when they can pull the final step to get it repealed so it doesn't have any force, and we start the whole crazy cycle again. So I'm a little bit historically skeptical of the ability to make a durable arrangement of the sort you suggest. If we could, I'd go in that direction, but because the other side has been so successful in undoing the efforts we've made, I tend to lead to the more, you know, to end up in the more sweeping position, we really have to make a fundamental
1: shift. yeah i understand i absolutely understand the book understanding marxism professor richard wolf professor thanks for dropping by again
2: thank you tom look forward to our next
3: call me too this
1: is the tom hartman program we'll be right back you can check out professor wolf's work over at rdwolf.com or democracy at the book we were discussing understanding marxism we've all heard of casper You know, the Sleep Company, with the outrageously comfortable products at not-so-outrageous prices. From award-winning mattresses to pillows, sheets, and duvets, Casper transforms the way we sleep one snooze at a time. Haven't tried them yet? Then it's time to treat yourself to better sleep during their extended Black Friday Cyber Monday sale. Casper Mattress is an award-winning balance of comfort and support. Louise and I love our Casper Mattress. Four layers of premium foam are designed to provide pressure relief for all-night comfort. The zoned support system, unique to Casper, keeps your back aligned and cradles you with extra support. Casper is the perfect place to get all your holiday shopping done because Hey, let's be honest, everybody sleeps. And as always, Casper has free shipping and free returns. Plus, every Casper mattress comes with a 100-night risk-free trial. Treat yourself with 10% off any purchase with a mattress today at Casper.com and use the code MONDAYS, even though today's not Monday. That's Casper.com, code MONDAYS, to get 10% off any purchase with a mattress today. Terms and conditions apply. See Casper.com slash terms. Anyway, there are a few trends. I mean, this is kind of the noise that's around everything, but there are a few trends I think that we really need to be paying attention to right now because we have seen this movie before. We saw this movie back in the 1920s and 1930s. We are facing a couple of things that are, you know, almost direct repeats of this. First of all, we're seeing the rise of a new and brutal form of governance with extraordinary industrial capacity and power. This is China. The last time we saw this, you know, the rise of an industrial power that was also essentially fascistic was Nazi Germany, the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s in Germany, in Europe. And of course, that went on to cause World War II in part we're seeing the exhaustion of monetary policies. In the United States, we have interest rates that are just a little over 1%. In Europe, some, in some cases, they're even below zero. And in and of itself, you know, if you just look at that in a, in a little cube and say, oh, interesting, look at that, it doesn't seem to be all that meaningful, but if you look at it in larger context, which is that the principal way that governments can stimulate an economy when the economy goes in the tank because of the cycle the cyclical nature of capitalism when when an economy goes in the tank the principal way that a government can can stimulate it out of recession or depression is by lowering interest rates and the last time our government was using low interest rates to solve a problem like this it was the great depression interest rates went down to close to zero and but they're close to zero now And yet we're having an expanding economy and an expanding and an increasing stock market. So the problem here with that is that if there is a financial crisis or even just a downturn, there's no way to use monetary policy, to use interest rates to get us out of that. The other thing, the other tool, the other weapon, by the way, that central banks have is pouring money into the economy by buying bonds out of the marketplace and and injecting that money into the economy as a whole, thereby. And we've been doing that for 10 years. It was called QE, quantitative easing. They're not calling it that anymore, but they're doing the same thing. And they had to start doing it on an emergency basis with the repo market a few months ago. So at the same time that we're seeing the rise of China invoking the possibility of the Thucydides Trap, the Greek philosopher who pointed out that war is most likely to happen when a, an established power, we have a unipolar world, the United States basically ruled the world from the collapse of the Soviet Union in the 90s and the first decade of the 2000s, to now where China's economy is going to be larger than ours any day now, might be already, and their middle class is now three times the size of ours and you know it's just like okay so that's a lucidity trap. that's a potential warp point another one of the four things that we need to be looking at is that inequality and poverty in the united states are back to levels that they were in the 1920s during the roaring 20s which led again straight to the stock market crash of 1929. the last time we saw this was 1929 this level of inequality And then finally we're seeing massive amounts of both government and corporate debt and individual debt. And you know, the reason for that is the low interest rates. It's it's just very simple, right? When money is cheap, people buy it, which is or rent it, which is, you know, what you do when you borrow money, you're renting money. And if the cost to rent money is five, six, seven percent, you know, normal interest rates, or even three or four percent. If you're running a business and you're looking at that and you're saying okay i can use this money for one of two things basically i can borrow money and use it to increase the value of my stocks or the price of my stocks it doesn't increase the value i can use it to increase the price of my stocks by buying shares back out of the marketplace and retiring them and thus you know the number of shares in circulation goes down so the price goes up I could do that or I could take this money and I could invest it in new products or new services or expansion or R&D. In a world where interest rates are 3 4 5%, you have to know that your stock price is going to go up more than 6 or 7% in order to be able to pay back that debt. Or that the product you're going to produce is going to have to produce a profit of 6 or 7 or 8%. You know, it's got to be above the cost of borrowing money. But when you can borrow money for free, as in Europe, or when you can borrow money for 1%, as in the United States, you only have to show a 2% profit or a 3% profit, which is the riskier investment strategy. So companies have been, you know, I mean, they're literally buying back trillions of dollars worth of their own shares right now. And they're not investing this money in R&D because the fastest return on your investment is simply to buy the stock in your own company at least from the point of view of the CEOs and all the senior executives who are principally paid with stock. Something that was illegal before the Reagan presidency, by the way, and should be again, because this paying executives with stock causes them to make decisions based on what's going to increase stock price, not what's best for the company or what's best for the economy or what's best for the community. It's called a perverse incentive. So as these variables all rush together, what we have right now are the seeds of a possible Second Great Depression and Third World War. And to navigate times like this, we really need smart people in our political system. But because in the 1970s, the Supreme Court legalized political bribery and said billionaires and big corporations can own as many politicians as they want, no limits, all good. Instead, what we have are shills running our politics. I mean, just very simply. And idiots. I mean, you know. And yeah, the law is catching up with them here and there. but So I, I, I'm seeing all these things, all these mistakes that we're making, that are virtual clones of what we did in the 1920s and early 1930s. And it's just, it's just jaw-dropping, basically. I mean, you know, these CEOs are basically running a Ponzi scheme. You know, with the share buybacks. And it's been going on for years now. Clearly, we need somebody in the White House who understands this stuff and who will put this genie back in the bottle before this, uh, you know, to torture the metaphor, before this genie blows up our country or our world. I mean, you know, there's some really very, very serious issues here. And I think we need to be taking them very seriously. But instead we have now, again, this, you know, here to extend it even further, you know, another, another trap, another problem, another danger area. Instead of having a media which explains to people what's going on, I mean, go back and read the New York Times from the 1930s. They laid out, you know, who, what the policies were, who the politicians were, what was going on. Now, well, yeah, the, the Times and the Post do a pretty good job of reporting the news. But most of the news, I mean, our local newspaper, USA Today, the, you know, obviously talk radio, people are getting very little news. They're getting human interest stories, and they're getting wall-to-wall coverage of Donald Trump, you know, and if it leads, it bleeds kind of stuff but you know we're really not hearing what's going on. We used to have laws in place that guaranteed local ownership of media, radio, television, and newspapers, which led to a sense of responsibility on the part of the owners for their community. I mean, I get the newspaper that we get here in Oregon is owned by a company in New York. How crazy is that? So all of these are the result of, we had this situation in the 20s, it crashed our economy and led to a world war. Franklin Roosevelt laid out the causes of the problem and fixed them with a whole bunch of things from you know the Fairness Doctrine to local ownership rules to the way that the Fed would operate to restricting, making it illegal for corporations to pay their senior executives with stock. Basic common sense regulations separating investment banks, the Glass-Steagall Act, separating investment banks from checkbook banks so that banks would not gamble with the money that you have in your savings account. And every single one of those things has been blown up, largely by Republicans, although in many cases with enthusiastic complicity from Democrats who are, in some cases, also because the Supreme Court legalized this in the 1970s, who are also taking big money from the big banks. And so they're voting you know, to blow up Glass-Steagall, for example. And so the question, I guess, is, you know, how do we stop this? Or will it take another crash to stop this? Arnold Toynbee is said to have said, you know, when the last man who remembers the horrors, of the last great war dies, the next great war becomes inevitable. Well, the people who remember what it was like in the 1920s that created the great depression of the 1930s are pretty much all dead. In fact, those who were adults in the 1920s are all dead. And so where are the voices? They're only coming from our historians and a few economists. Like Paul Krugman. John in Langley, Washington. Hey, John, what's on your mind today?
3: We're talking about money and how we're going to pay for things like in Sweden. Well, what struck me is that our currency is a fiat currency, which means it's on the full faith and credit of the people of the United States. And our... Federal Reserve, which is a private institution, is constantly flooding the banks with money for overnight rates because banks won't lend to each other. But we have that money that they're willing to give to prop up things. We never discussed that That is full faith and credit of the people. So if we invested in Medicare for all and education, it's already our money. We seem to yeah. be able to print it at will to give it to people. So why do we continue to let the other side talked about how we're going to pay for it. That should not be an yeah. issue at all. Setting, at a, all.
1: setting aside a, a long drawn out discussion of modern monetary theory, you know the bottom the bottom line here is that when you invest in people, when you invest in infrastructure, go back and look at the Eisenhower Highway Bill. When you invest in people, go back and look at the GI Bill. You actually make more money in taxes. Then you spent on the original investment. Now it takes some time for that money to come back. But when it comes back, it comes back in a big way over a long period of time. And we basically stopped investing in America when Reagan dropped the top tax rate. He also dropped corporate taxes. During the Eisenhower administration, fully one third of all government expenses were paid for by corporate taxes. Today, it's less than 6%. And you know this is the result of Reaganism, of the, of the changes that Reagan made to our tax code. So instead, Reagan was like, well, let's start putting everything on the country's credit card, essentially. Let's put it all in the debt. He tripled the national debt while he was president. And the theory was that whenever a Republicans in office, their job, they're in a very important job for them to do. The Jude Winskey came up with this theory called the Two Santa Clauses Theory. Their job is to run up the debt so that when a Democrat becomes president, all the Republicans can, can start screaming about the debt and force the Democrat to cut social spending. And they've been doing. They've been following this script literally to the T since 1980. I mean, it was Jude Wyninski came up with it in the late 70s. Jude's no longer with us, but the two Santa Claus theory still is. So, yeah, you're right. You're right, I'm John. Talking
3: about, I'm talking about the monetary policy of that it's our money. No, it's I get that.
1: Yes, happen. and we issue our own currency, and, you know, That's right. uh, you know, in theory we could even because the constitution gives the US Treasury the power to to mint coins, right, and to define their value, they could produce the US Treasury could produce 21 trillion dollar platinum coins and then right. hand those coins off to the Federal Reserve and say, or to itself essentially, and say, okay, we're going to pay off the national debt. The problem is you don't want to pay off the national debt. The national debt of the United States has only been paid off once. It was in, as I recall, 1836 during the presidency of Andrew Jackson. And it might've been a little earlier than that, but it produced a six-year long depression. It was the longest, deepest, and most destructive depression in the history of the United States. And it came about because he paid off the national debt. The national debt is private savings. When you as a family go into debt, and this is where this whole family model falls apart, if you as a family go into debt, it just means some bank is making profit off you. But when our country goes into debt, it means that people, companies, and even foreign countries have a safe place to invest their money. That's private savings, that's the national debt. So the national debt is not a terrible thing. I mean, there's certain levels at which it becomes unwieldy and you don't wanna be paying too much interest on it, which is the main reason not to have a large national debt because it sucks up money from other places. But yeah, you're absolutely right, John. And and with a fiat currency, you can can do those things. As I said, that gets into modern monetary theory and we probably should get back into that one of these days. It's been a long time since we've had one of these good academic discussions of, of how economics works. You're listening
3: to Tom Hartman.
1: The holiday season is upon us. It's that time of year again, family, friends, and everything so conveniently documented in video and photographs capturing every laugh and smile and under eye bag, under eye bag, wrinkles, crow's feet. Yes, those telltale signs of aging. Who wants those in their holiday cards? Now, imagine they're gone. I'm not talking about some risky, expensive surgery, just gone in minutes. It's called Plexiderma, clinically studied serum that visibly eliminates your wrinkles, crow's feet and under eye bags in minutes. It's exactly what you need to get through the holiday season and beyond. Don't believe it? I didn't either until I saw it. Now I don't have to imagine anymore. People look just like themselves, only younger. Plexiderm can give you the confidence you'll need to face that judgmental family member. We all know who I'm talking about. The best part is Plexiderm goes on clear, so nobody will know you're using it. Unless, of course, you tell them. Get Plexiderm's holiday promotion. Go to Plexiderm.com and use my code HARTMAN for 50% off plus an additional $10 off. That's right, 50% off plus an extra $10 off. This offer is also available by calling 1-800-741-7998. That's 1-800-741-7998. Again, that's 1-800-741-7998. Or visit Plexiderm.com today and use the code HARTMAN at checkout. Hey, it's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from Jeffrey Sachs' new book, Building the New American Economy, Smart, Fair, and Sustainable. This is the preface. The foreword of the book, by the way, was written by Bernie Sanders. This is from the preface, though, by Jeffrey Sachs. Donald Trump becomes president of a nation that is deeply divided by class, race, health, and opportunity. In his acceptance speech, Trump pledged to be the president for all Americans. He also gave a very promising hint of how to pursue that objective in practice. Trump is a real estate developer, so it's not surprising that his brief acceptance speech was dominated by the idea of rebuilding, a word he mentioned four times. And then here's the quote. Working together, we will begin the urgent task of rebuilding our nation and renewing the American dream. We are going to fix our inner cities and rebuild our highways, bridges, tunnels, airports, schools, and hospitals. We're going to rebuild our infrastructure, which will become, by the way, second to none. And we will put millions of our people to work as we rebuild it. End of quote from Trump. This is a valid, indeed, uplifting perspective. America desperately needs rebuilding. Its infrastructure is decrepit. Its energy system is out of date for a climate-threatened economy. Its coastal areas are already showing grave vulnerability to rising sea levels and extreme storms. Its rust belt cities like Grand Rapids, Michigan, are boarded up. Its inner cities across the country are unhealthy for the people being raised in them. Rebuilding America's cities and creating a 21st century infrastructure could be Trump's greatest legacy. Trump's pledge to make America's infrastructure second to none is a correct and bold goal for America's competitiveness, future job creation, public health, and well-being. Yet, as I will explain in this book, America today is certainly no longer second to none. On a recent Sustainable Development Goals Index, the United States ranked 22nd out of 34 high-income countries. For Americans returning from foreign travel, a well-known sign that they've touched down at home is that the elevators, escalators, and moving walkways of our once-proud airports are out of order. A builder president could indeed help to restore vitality to the U.S. economy and put millions of people to work in the process. All of the major candidates in the 2016 presidential campaign pledged a major effort to rebuild America's infrastructure. Indeed, Trump suggested a hefty price tag of $1 trillion, which is a realistic sum and target for the coming five years, roughly 1% of national income every year. The keys to success in building a new American economy can be summarized in three words, smart, fair, and sustainable. A smart economy means deploying the best of cutting-edge technology. Our energy grid should be smart in economizing on energy use and incorporating distributed energy sources, such as wind and solar power, into the grid. Our transport systems should be smart in enabling self-driving electric vehicles within our cities and 21st century high-speed rail between them. A fair economy would start with Trump's pledge to rebuild the inner cities. Such a pledge should include affordable housing, decent urban public schools and public health facilities, efficient transport services for low income communities, parks and green spaces in places now burdened by urban blight, the cleanup of urban toxic dumps, comprehensive recycling rather than landfill, and safe water for all Americans so that the water drinking disaster that afflicts Flint, Michigan, and similar crises elsewhere are brought to a rapid end and never recur. A sustainable economy means acknowledging and anticipating the dire environmental threats facing America's cities and infrastructure. The vulnerability of New Orleans levees had been predicted by scientists and engineers long before Hurricane Katrina. The flooding of New York City had been predicted long before Hurricane Sandy. The risks ahead to the United States in the event of unchecked climate change can be found in countless scientific and policy studies, such as risky business and the National Climate Assessment. Much could go wrong in an undirected building boom that is not smart, fair, and sustainable. Trump's campaign pledges to restore the Keystone XL pipeline and U.S. coal production are cases in point. Investing in a boom in fossil fuels would be an expensive dead end. Such projects will inevitably be closed soon after they are completed, if not in a Trump administration, then in the ones that follow. They are simply untenable environmentally, no matter what the lobbyists assert. Billions of dollars would be thrown down the drain to develop resources that will never be used. It's funny that climate deniers are chortling about the incoming Trump administration. Nature doesn't care what they think, and neither do the 192 other countries on the planet that signed the recent Paris climate agreement. Fossil fuel companies can spend money developing unusable sources, resources, but they would be throwing money down the mine shaft, as with the investors buying the, the bonds financing such hapless projects. Trump made another very important pledge in his acceptance speech that should underpin a successful strategy for building a new American economy. He said, I will harness the creative talents of our people, and we will call upon our best and brightest to leverage their tremendous talent for the benefit of all. America has nearly 5,000 colleges and universities across the country, including every congressional district. And with the finest collection of engineering and scientific faculty, this is Jeffrey Sachs now talking, uh, faculty and knowledge in the world, these institutions of higher learning have schools of public policy, social work, public health, business administration, and environmental science. Most importantly, they have 21 million young Americans enrolled to gain expertise in the skills needed for leadership and skills for the 21st century. By harnessing the vast brainpower and experience in our colleges and universities, civil society and business, America could indeed enter an era of successful rebuilding, one that creates a smart, fair, and sustainable economy that is truly second to none and serves as an inspiration for other parts of the world. This is from Jeffrey Sachs. He wrote it in November of 2016 right after the election before the inauguration book building the new america okay so the other thing that i wanted to share with you and we can dig into this is How do we stop the next generation from dying younger than the generations that preceded them? You've got the millennials, Generation Z coming up, and we have, over the last three years, and I don't think it's a coincidence that it coincides literally with the election of Donald Trump, but over the last three years, we have seen death rates in the United States go up and and uh, life expectancy rates go down. This is not happening in any other developed country in the world. Big report in today's, uh, or in this week's Journal of the American Medical, Medical Association about this, and, uh, it, and and the shocking part about it is it's not old folks who are dying young. That, you know, if you're over 65, uh, depending on, you know, well, it, if you're over 65, the rate of death is pretty much where it was you know, a decade ago. The major group that is dying young are people between the ages of 25 and 64. There are 35 causes of this. The principal ones are the so-called diseases of despair, suicide, alcohol, and drug overdose. But in addition to that, we're having an explosion of diabetes, an explosion of autoimmune disorders, an explosion of obesity and high blood pressure. And these are the diseases of poverty. These are the diseases of, of, you know, people not being able to afford to eat well or living in food deserts. And this, this all ties back to this explosion in inequality in income, inequality in resources, inequality in wealth, and it's producing now inequality in health. And by the way, The states where most of this is happening are red states. Uh, Paul Krugman has a great piece in the New York Times. It's called America's Red State Death Trip. He says just 20 years ago in 2000, in the census of 2000, the life expectancy in Democratic areas in blue states and life expectancy in red states was the same. The same for blue and red counties. It was pretty much the same. Now, 20 years later... Red counties are experiencing an explosion of deaths. And blue states and counties are staying right where they were. So blue states doing just fine. In fact, life expectancy is actually going up in most blue states. Red states, life expectancy is plummeting. Obesity is higher, diabetes is higher, heart disease is higher. I got to tell you what Bill Barr thinks about this after the break, and then I'll take your calls. Stick around. Honest to God, Bill Barr, the attorney general, has an absolutely insane theory for why this is happening. I'll tell you all about it in just a minute. So I just laid out how people are dying younger in red states. Actually life expectancy in the United States, in in blue states or blue counties, you you can do it either way, is continuing to expand. People are living longer. But overall for the United States, life expectancy for the last three years has actually been going down. Why? Because in red states, people are dying much faster. And they're dying from a whole variety of causes. And, you know, there's a pretty broad consensus that this has to do with massive income inequality in the red states. You're very rich and a lot of poverty. And the failure or the unwillingness of red state governors, Republican governors, to expand Medicaid. So you've got more people who don't have health insurance, don't have access to health care, and thus more people die. But Bill Barr, our brilliant attorney general, fundamentalist Catholic, gave a speech at one of the Catholic universities a week or three ago in which he said that he, he noted the, you know, the, 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 the societal trends, that you know people are dying younger and there's more suicides and, and more drug addiction and things like that. He noted the stuff that I was just talking about. And he explained it by using the exact same rationale that you'll recall Al and Tipper Gore were talking about in the 1990s, Bill Clinton didn't talk so much about family values after he got busted, you know, with Monica, but Tipper Gore was running around wanting to ban music lyrics. Remember that? And before that, you had, you know, Reagan and, you know, with Bill Bennett, his little book of virtues guy who was his education secretary, Bill Bennett saying, well, you know, it's all caused by the collapse of the family. Now, when Bill Bennett said it was the collapse of the family, What he was really talking about was black people in poverty. And Sean, if you can bring up my 360, I'll share with you, uh, you know, Bill Bennett, essentially talking about that. Here he is. But I, I do know that it's true that if you wanted to reduce
3: crime, you could, if that were your sole purpose, you could abort every black baby in this country and your crime rate would go down. That would be an impossible, ridiculous,
0: and morally reprehensible thing to do. But your crime rate would go down.
1: I mean this is how they thought back, you know, in the this was in the 1980s during Ronald Reagan's presidency, that was his secretary of education, Bill Bennett, saying this. And, you know, and basically saying, you know, it's this moral failing. Well, then they got a little more sophisticated about it, and in the 90s, the conservative take on why people were dying was that it was marriage was falling apart. And That's what Bill Barr said. Well, actually, he went back to, you know, one of the Reagan talking points and basically, you know, kind of Al Gore's, and I don't mean to trash Al Gore. What he's doing now, you know, in climate is just absolutely, we should all applaud. He's become a national hero. But there was a time there. And a lot of people bought that, you know, that line that, you know, our culture is collapsing. So Bill Barr says it's because we're not religious enough. And of course he was speaking at a catholic university but hes you know basically he's saying that it's the secularist militant secularists was the phrase he used assault on traditional values oh my god gay people are getting married people are not showing up in church people are not declaring themselves to be religious people are living not in wedlock all of these things according to Bill Barr, our current attorney general, are the reason why people are dying younger in red states, which makes absolutely no sense because those secularists that Bill Barr is saying are the cause of the problem are largely centered in the blue states. You've got fanatical adherence to religion in red states, much higher rates of church attendance in red states, You know, much greater oppression of gay and trans and, you know, the whole spectrum of people in red states. Much greater tolerance in blue states. You've got more racial heterogeneity in blue states. I mean, Bill Barr couldn't have been more upside down in his logic. And Paul Krugman points out, you can even do this internationally. He says, in Sweden, traditional marriage is clearly in a decline. The young adults there are more likely than Americans to be living with a partner, less likely to be married, but society doesn't seem to be collapsing. The Swedes are one-sixth as likely as Americans to attend a religious service. Again, Paul Krugman writes, society doesn't seem to be collapsing. So let's just do away with this nonsense, huh? It's not about, you know, as Bill Bennett, as the Reagan administration was saying back in the 80s, you know, all of our problems were being caused by poor black people in the inner city, in quotes. It's not as as was argued in the 90s by Republicans and by the Clinton administration, that it's moral failures. It's not what is being argued right now by Bill Barr and, and the Trump administration. It's a failure. You know, it's, it's that we're not embracing religion. The thing that's killing us is the destruction of the social safety net, Red states where death rates are so much higher are also those places. In fact, the the highest death rates in the United States right now, Ohio, Indiana, Pennsylvania, and I believe it was West Virginia. I don't have the list in front of me, but it 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 was four states that, Pennsylvania may have some Democrats, but four states that are basically red states. They accounted for a third of the excess deaths that are skewing our nation's statistics. And then you get into the southern states and, you know, the same thing.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman.
2: Go ahead, Carl. I'm listening.
3: Talk dirty to me.
2: Staff, salmonella, E. coli, influenza. Wait,
3: not that kind of dirty.
2: Do you realize you just took me to the toilet and kept wiping in between tweets? No wonder one in six phones contain fecal matter. Gross.
0: Whatever your hands touch, I touch. I'm covered in filth. It's enough to make both of us sick. Please, can you get me a phone soap? Phone soap? Phone soap safely kills
2: 99.99% of all those germs with clinically proven UV light. It won't damage my screen like liquids or chemicals.
3: Good, because you're all I've got.
2: That's so
3: sweet, Carl.
1: Phone soap is trusted and used by healthcare professionals and hospitals. It fits phones of all sizes. Phone soap makes the perfect holiday gift. Go to phonesoap.com, use code TOM to save 20% off and receive free shipping. That's phonesoap.com, use code TOM. Go to phonesoap.com and use code THOM to
3: save 20% off today.
1: So the destruction of the social safety net, it's that people don't have access to good education because we still fund our schools based on property tax. Something that goes back to the days when white people didn't want black people to have a good education. And so they said the local community will fund education. It's pure racism driving that. You don't have expansion of Medicaid. Again, that goes back. You go back to the 60s and look at the debates around Medicare and Medicaid, particularly Medicaid. And the white segregationist Southern senators were the ones who fought that, tooth and nail. Why? Because it would provide health care to poor black people. You know, racism is at the core of these problems that Republicans just keep perpetuating. It's the exact opposite of what Bennett and Reagan were saying. It's not black people. It's the way they're treated. It's not poor people. It's the folks who are making them poor who are causing these problems. It's not minorities, uh, gender minorities, racial minorities, religious minorities. It's not that. It's the people who are demonizing minorities. And religion is not the answer. We know that from, you know, you look all around the world. The least religious countries have the highest standard of living and the best quality of life and the longest life expectancies. I mean, this this is not rocket science. Anyway, well, let's pick up some of your phone calls here. Uh, Rodney in Washington, D.C., listening on Pacifica Radio. Hey, Rodney, what's up? Hey, well, I'll tell you what, guy. <laughs> I was so happy when I heard your voice. I said, this is Tom Hartman on
0: PFW, you know, Pacifica. And sure enough, it was. Oh, that's great. So I used to watch your show like a hawk when you were on RT two, three years back, and then they yanked
1: it, you know, from uh, OTA-TV around here. And, and I-, I left them. But, yeah, well, thank you. I'm glad you like the show, and I'm glad you can hear it. You, you want to speak to the topics of the day? Yeah, I do. I do.
0: Uh, yeah, just to say uh, one more time, you're the bomb, man. And so you. uh You know, I've got several things to say here. Well, I'll start with the last topic you just made as far as social safety nets, I believe even as far back as the 60s. It was posited that there were more poor whites capita than
1: there were blacks now I don't know if that statistic has changed or not but in absolute numbers there are there are a lot more poor white people than black people just simply because there's more white people than black people but right okay. but I, yeah but, you know poverty relative to race is greater in the black community than in the white community oh, of for, course. for a fairly of course. obvious reason you know the white community has 400 years of social capital and wealth capital that it has you know I mean you know 40 generations or 30, 20 generations that it's been building that capital whereas the black community has been prevented from having access to that capital largely up until the 1960s. Right. Correct.
0: Well, what about all the infrastructure promises that have been made over the last two administrations? You know, uh, bridges, roads, tunnels, highways. You know, we've got a greater need for that than we did in the 50s. Yeah. And uh, I would say that, before I forget this, I hate to wedge this in, but the music uh, segue and theme that you had on RT was in good taste, and I happen to be a musician, but okay. at any rate, if you could bring that back, it'd be great over the radio.
1: I'm glad you anyway, I'm glad you like it. Rodney, i got to move along, but thanks for the call. Peter in Lawton, Oklahoma. Hey, Peter, what's on your mind today?
4: Hi, thank you. It's an honor to be able to talk to you, sir. When I heard that the, they wanted to bring back uh, pre-existing conditions, I just shuddered. 30 years ago, I had to make the decision for DNR and my wife. Or cancer that we were not aware of until we reached the emergency room, from breast cancer. And she, of course, they delayed the chemo for six months, and then uh, it spread.
1: Why did and, they delay uh, it?
4: Well, she had went to the doctor four months prior because she had a lump on her breast. He ignored it and said, "Well, you need to lose weight. It's just a cyst. Don't worry about
1: it." Wow, that's that's and no then, practice. And then,
4: and of course I had uh, two sons aged 7 and 11 at the time. Yeah. And it was not for the union stepping in with the hospital bills what the insurance didn't pay. I was you know they were calling my house and the hospital uh, was and so so you've check. been
1: basically a victim of our yeah, health insurance yeah, industry. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Oh, and man, five that's...
4: years ago, I had to do the same thing for my cousin. He couldn't give it anything.
1: That's terrible, Peter. Peter, thanks a lot for the call. I mean, these these are the kind of stories that illustrate why we're having this rise in death in the United States. It's, it's, and, and why we need to do something about it. We need to do something about it past.
3: You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video
1: archives. Back with more of your calls in just a moment. Lewis in Chicago. Hey, Lewis, what's up?
0: Hey, Tom. I was listening to the opening part of your show, and you are talking about China and how they're becoming, well, they are the second largest economy, and like you said, possibly the first by now. The only one to address that is my right now favorite president, disappointing Donald. He's the only one in the world that has ever talked about addressing the trade disparities.
1: Well, actually, um, you know, so Bernie Sanders China put that at the center of his, of his presidential campaign four years ago. Sherrod Brown has been talking about it for decades. The Democratic Party, by yeah, and large, has been opposed to all these free it, trade deals. The no, but, he, but here's the, the, here's the thing. Else
4: has ever done
1: Lewis, it. Lewis okay. I'm with you. You know, the one good thing I can say about Donald Trump is he has put trade front and center. God bless him. He, I'm glad he did it. The problem is... We have a trade policy in the United States. since And this started with Richard Nixon in 1974, with the with the 1974 Trade Act that gave him fast-track authority. And then Reagan doubled down on this in, in the early 80s. And then Clinton doubled down on it again in 93 with NAFTA, although NAFTA was negotiated by Reagan and Bush. These are Republican trade policies, this so-called free trade. And Donald Trump has been a Democrat his whole life. And the Democratic Party has been largely opposed to these free trade deals. They were even opposed to Clinton doing it. That's why, you know, ross perot came out and said and got one out of five votes in 92. now here's the here's the problem lewis if you want a company that is currently running a factory in china to bring that factory back to the united states you're asking them to invest hundreds of millions of dollars in a new factory they need to know that the tariffs that will protect their business when they move that factory back to the united states are going to be in place for at least a decade probably two decades in or, in order for them to be able to recoup that investment. Trump is not doing it that way. Trump is using a loophole, essentially, in our national security laws that give the president the ability to use tariffs for national security purposes. In other words, to say, you know, uh, this this particular company or product or whatever, you know, it's not good for the United States. We we need to have, uh, you know, uh, strategic reserves or whatever it may be. Well, those will those tariffs will only last as long as he's president, and whoever comes in after him you know, can, can walk away from them. That's why none of these companies have relocated their factories in America. In fact, manufacturing in the United States has actually declined during the last three years under the Trump administration. So yeah, we're you know, we're collecting uh, you know, a fair amount of money in tariffs and yes, American consumers are paying more for their goods and yes, some of these importing companies are a little less profitable, but they're not changing their behavior because Trump isn't doing it right because he doesn't know how to do these things right. He's not a particularly bright man. You know, I know Robert Lighthizer, his trade advisor, or he's been on our show a number of times. He's a good guy. He's smart. He gets it. And I think, frankly, this is probably the one area where Trump might be able to collaborate with the Democrats and get something done. The Republicans are totally opposed to what Trump is doing with tariffs. We'll be back. Welcome back. Tom Harbin here with you and Barry in Concord, North Carolina. Hey, Barry, what's on your mind today? Thanks for listening to SiriusXM.
0: All right, Tom, I listen to you religiously. I'm a moderate conservative, and I just wanted to ask you to do one thing. When you mention the word free, and you refer to the countries of Finland, Denmark, Sweden, countries that are civilized, you also need to tell your audience that these people, these citizens of these countries, pay anywhere between 60 and 70% of their income in taxes to have free stuff. So free comes with a, a
1: price, and I think you owe it to your audience to bring that up. And then secondly... Yeah, I well, hang on just a second. Wait a second. Wait a second. Just, you know, I, can't, I just can't let a statement that's not true stand. And, and I encourage you to do your homework on this, Barry. We did our show for two weeks in Denmark. I don't think the tax laws have changed much in the four or five years since we did our show from there. I had a whole bunch of Danish politicians on, the majority of them conservatives. In fact, I think I only had two or three politicians that I agreed with that would consider themselves progressives or liberals. In Denmark, if you are working at... McDonald's, the minimum wage there is $18.50 an hour, as I recall. Yes, they pay more in taxes, and the top, more or less, the top tax rate for people in the upper middle class is around 54%. The average tax rate for people in the middle class is around 35%. And at the very top end, you know, the taxes can go up to 80% or more if you're, you know, after you make your first two or three or four million dollars. I don't remember the exact numbers, but the point is that for working people, regardless of the top tax rate or regardless of the tax rate that's paid working people are paid based on take home pay so in the united states it, you know for example every time there has been a tax cut on working people in the united states and you can go back over and i've written several articles about this you can easily google and i'm not the only one you, and there's entire books on economics you know that are devoted to this go back over the last 50 years in the united states whenever taxes on working people have gone down so has pay in the subsequent years, in the three years following. Why? Because the employers know that the working people have more money in their, in their pockets as a consequence of their after-tax income going up because their taxes went down. And the consequence of that is that the employers dial them back because they know what people are willing to work for. That is to say they know what the wage, you know, what, the, what, what a particular job, what the average pay is for a particular job. On the other hand, when taxes on working people go up, And again, you know, look at the history of the United States, because you will find that they've gone both up and down. When taxes on working people go up, wages go up because their take-home pay has shrunk and they can't work for that job any longer at that pay. Now, that rule, which, you know, most people, you know, just common sense and logic would indicate that that's how it works and in fact that is how it works that's why in denmark they pay $18.45 54 cents or 45 cents an hour whatever it is at mcdonald's as starting wage at mcdonald's in germany starting wage for mcdonald's is around $14 an hour cuz they've got high taxes too but they're not as high as denmark's here in the United States, starting starting wage at McDonald's is probably 10 or 15 bucks. I think they've, they've increased it somewhat in the last three or four years, but you know, up in probably five, six years ago, it was seven bucks an hour. So, but no, with no taxes. Now, let me just put one codicil on this and then you can talk all you want. The other point though, is for people who have control over their own wage, for the rich, for the very wealthy, for the CEOs, for people who live on investments, for people who have control over their own wages, whether taxes go up or down, does not have much effect on their wage because they can control their wages. So for the top say 5 or 10% of the uh, economically of people, when taxes go down, their take home goes up and it stays up because they're not operating in a marketplace unless, you know, unless they're at the junior executive level. Uh, and when taxes go up, their take home pay goes down and that's why 40 years ago, before Reagan dropped the top tax rate from 74% to 25% in the 1980s, before the 1980s, average CEOs in the United States from the 1930s until the 1980s took 30 times what their lowest paid employee took on average. Right now, it's around 600 times what the lowest paid employee takes. Why? Because the top tax rate went down. It used to be on your first two, three million dollars in today's dollars, you would pay... 25, 35, 45%. And then it started going above 50%. When it started going above 50%, people said, okay, I'll cap my salary at that level and we'll reinvest this money in the business. And then once Reagan dropped that top tax rate below 50%, those people just started saying, hey, I'm gonna take all I can get. And what do you have? An explosion of income inequality and wealth inequality. And, and essentially, it's very corrosive. It's destructive to society. Finland pays their teachers, and their police, by the way, they pay them about the same as they pay their doctors, teachers, police, and doctors all make a little over hundred thousand dollars a year in Finland.
0: That's fine. I don't question that. You can so, make. It. I'm just so after taxes that they're, they're free, taking home fifty
1: grand a year. Right. In order
0: for us to have free education and free medical, there's going to be a cost involved. There's no such thing
1: as free. You're so right. That's that's my point. But Second, you've got right now, Barry, here in the United States, because Reagan dropped that top tax rate below fifty percent, you have three men who own as much wealth as the bottom half of the United States, as 180 million people. you got three men who own as much wealth as the bottom half of the United States. I don't you've, you've, you agree with that. You've got I, 600 I, I people who that. own as much wealth as the bottom 90% of the United States. I find that true. All right, uh, secondly, I just wanted to tell you, I will not be voting for Donald
0: Trump. I'm a moderate conservative who supports some sort of universal health care for all citizens of the United States and willing to pay a price for that. So I am a moderate
1: conservative. I'm, well, I, 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 I t- tip my, you know my hat to you, that I tip my hat to you. Thank you. Thanks for the call. I thought that was a very enlightening call. I appreciate it. And don't forget, democracy is not a spectator sport. Democracy really, I mean, the whole idea of democracy is the demos. It's us, right, the people. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it.
3: You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.